Real quick, I gotta let you in on a testing secret. With regulations and breaches on the rise, production data is no longer safe or legal for developers to use. And creating test data in-house is a complex chore that eats away valuable time. That's where Tonic comes in. They make it possible to create a true mirror of production by safely and realistically mimicking production data. So you can work on real product and steer clear of surprises at release time. Learn more at tonic.ai slash code story. We actually were able to do things that most lean startups cannot, often starting on day zero with zero lines of code written, right? And they're starting with, okay, how do we build it? What do we build? What does this look like? I already had the good fortune of building the product at LinkedIn over, you know, six plus years as a reaction to solving those problems for LinkedIn. We open sourced it and saw the community kind of starting to build really large companies that said, hey, if you'd like to pay LinkedIn for this, can we get on a call? I'm Shashanka Das, and I'm the co-founder and CTO of Acryl Data and founder of the Data Hub Project. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries. It's six months moonlighting. There's nothing on the back end. Who share what it takes to change an industry. I don't exactly know what to do next. took many goes to get right. Who built the teams that have their back. Our company is its people. The teams help each other achieve. Most proud of our team. Keeping scalability top of mind. All that infrastructure was a Yes, pain. we've been fighting it as we grow. Total waste of time. The stories you don't read in the headlines. It's not an easy thing to achieve, Mark. Took it off the shelf and dusted it off and tried to begin. To ride the ups and downs of the startup life. You need to really it's want it. not just about technology. All this and more on Code Story. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today, how Shashanka Das is giving you a way to take back control of your fragmented data stack. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open-sourced edge database from the creators of LibSQL. Do you put your edge computing close to your users? You should put your data there, too. Terso makes this easy, utilizing the developer experience of SQLite. Access a free starter plan at terso.tech slash codestory. Terso, welcome to the Data Edge. This episode is brought to you by our friends at MemberStack. MemberStack is the fastest way for you to launch a beautiful Webflow MVP with robust authentication and smooth payments integration. Join companies like Slack and American Airlines in serving millions of members every single day. Get started for free by visiting memberstack.com slash codestory. Shirshanka Das grew up on the eastern side of India, near Calcutta. He did well in school and got into IIT, choosing computer science as his major. Post-undergrad, he got his PhD at UCLA, eventually working at PayPal and Yahoo on massive architectural systems. Outside of tech, he's married with two kids, he's an accomplished Indian vocalist, and has a passion for swimming, which he states is his therapy. After spending over a decade at LinkedIn, Shoshanka had led the team supporting all things data. He created a unified approach to data discovery, governance, and observability. He open-sourced that product called Data Hub and eventually set out to create a commercial version. This is the creation story of Acryl Data. The company Acryl has an interesting history, the name itself. 
it came from thinking about a material that's clear, transparent, but also gives safety because our mission was bring clarity to data and we want to do it by taking back control of the fragmented data stack and give people a lot of safety and security. The reason we even got there was because of my and my co-founders groups shared experiences at LinkedIn and Airbnb going through like a zero to 60 or you could say zero to 100 of building a data stack from scratch. I got started on the big data sense in around 2014 or so. And at that time, we had Hadoop, we had Teradata, and we were migrating from one to the other or keeping our foot on both boats, which is never a good thing to do. And the main thing we noticed was people just didn't know where all the data lived and which data to even use for their analysis. LinkedIn is a very, was and continues to be a very data-driven product. And so we had a lot of data scientists we had a lot of ML engineers, and all of them were like hungry for data. If they used the right data, then good things were happening. And if they ended up using the wrong data, you know, the, the site would suffer and we would see people not connecting to other people. It was pretty important for us to make sure that our data was trustworthy, that it was being used well, and that our engineers were productive, that they were able to, within the first two weeks of joining LinkedIn, ship a model or ship a product, data-driven product to the site. And so that led to realizing that there are a few important problems worth solving. The first, of course, is data discovery, understanding where all your data is across operational and analytical systems, understanding lineage, getting operational and social context for your business users and your technical users. Once you have all of this information, this visibility, adding on the ability to govern this data. So making sure that your company's most important data products are well-governed and business-facing users can easily find and understand all the context they need. That's, in a nutshell, what our product does. And it's based on this metadata uh, platform that I built at LinkedIn called Data Hub. Um, so Data Hub was built over six years it evolved from being just a tool to being a full-on platform that ended up driving multiple use cases. And Acryl is the company that's driving the Data Hub project forward as an open source project, as well as uh, building Acryl Cloud, which is the commercial offering that takes all of the best things of Data Hub and then adds additional capabilities on top. So you get data discovery, data observability, and data governance integrated into one you know, unified product. So let's dive into the MVP then. And I imagine it's a little bit of, you know, the project that LinkedIn and then a little bit of the open sourcing process. And maybe there's another story around the commercial cloud version. You take it where you want to, but I'm curious about that MVP, how long it took to build and what sort of tools you were using to bring it to life. For us, it was different because I started out at LinkedIn as the tech lead for the big data platform team, realizing, oh my God, we have a problem. People are continuously asking questions about where the data is, how did it get here, and how do I use it? And so the first MVP, if you want to call it, was just built as an internal tool at LinkedIn. And I actually petitioned my manager saying, hey, this is an important problem. He was like, hey, 
we don't have headcount. They're like, no, it's a really important problem. Then I went around and convinced a few other people. And then finally, rabbled together a couple of contractors from an internal tools team who were looking for another interesting project to build. And then we actually built a really quick and dirty MVP and then showed it to our management team. And they were like, yeah, that looks interesting. Okay. And then over the years, we went from having a team which was solving purely this data discovery problem to later on, 2016 or so is when I was tapped to be the GDPR tech lead for LinkedIn. And at that point, I realized that, oh my God, this thing that I was working on, purely from a productivity and operational efficiency perspective, was actually held the key to doing governance and compliance correctly. So that ended up putting in a lot more investment into that same project. And we took it from just a data productivity tool to a metadata platform where we were able to integrate all data assets at LinkedIn, whether it was online tables, databases, streaming systems like Kafka Topics or stream processing engines or data warehouse concepts like tables, essentially constructing an enterprise-wide data graph. And then we open-sourced it. That was early 2020. And then we realized that we were just getting started because that MVP was great for LinkedIn. It satisfied LinkedIn's use cases really well. But then when you go out and meet the real world, you realize, oh, there's a lot more BI tools out there than the ones we have. There's a lot more warehouses out there. Building all of those integrations, building all of those capabilities requires a ton of additional work. That's the journey of the open source project. And then separately, Acryl as a company started building the commercial MVP on top of Data Hub while we were also evolving the Data Hub project. So we launched our cloud product within the first nine months of the company formation. We started in 2021, pretty much like first January 2021. And in the first nine months, we had launched our cloud product and had our first customer from the community within those nine months. This episode is encrypted by Cypherstash. Data breaches are becoming a fact of life. Know why? One of the reasons is because developers lack the right tooling to get the job done, i.e. encryption at rest tools are complex and inadequate. The solution? Encryption in use with Cypherstash. Cypherstash uses searchable encryption in use technology, providing continuous and universal protection for sensitive data. With Cypherstash, you can turn your existing database into a vault, utilizing zero-trust key management, SQL native, and with no code. Though encryption is complicated, Cypherstash is easy to use. The tool fully supports SQL via a drop-in driver replacement, supporting the query types you know and love today. And did we mention it's fast? For queries over 100 million records, you can expect additional overhead of less than one millisecond. It's a no-brainer. Get started by reviewing their docs or downloading sample projects in Rails or Node plus SQLize today. Visit cypherstash.com slash codestory and get started protecting your data. This episode is supported by Treble. This day and age, APIs are a fact of life. And as such, product and engineering teams need tooling that is lightweight, real-time, and data-rich to help them ship and maintain APIs faster. That's where Treble comes in. Treble is an all-in-one platform for the entire API lifecycle. 
The product offers world-class monitoring and observability, providing more than 40 data points for each request, enabling you to understand everything from performance to user behavior. Dashboards help connecting your entire team for lifecycle collaboration. Documentation is automatically generated, saving massive amounts of time for your development team with every new release. And setting up Treble? Super easy and fast. In three simple steps, you can be up and running with their platform. Their pricing is designed to support API teams of all sizes. So get started with Treble today and automate your API ops. Did I mention they have a free forever plan? Find out more by visiting treble.com slash codestory. That's T-R-B-L-L-E dot com slash codestory. So you've got your community now. You've got the MVP. You're ready to move forward. How did you progress the product from there and mature it? I think what I'm curious about there is how you went about building your roadmap and how you decided, okay, this is the next most important thing to build or to address with Acral Data. The first decision we had to make was investing in the community and investing in the project. So we, we realized that the tech we had built wasn't broadly ready for contributions. So we rewrote the front end, we created a new ingestion framework and things like that. And then we started seeing the contributions flowing in and we invested into the community, spent a bunch of time actually helping people without thinking about commercials, just helping people get to success with the project. Now that was really important. And the second thing we did early on, it was really about understanding what people really needed on top of the open source project. So obviously enterprise readiness was a big focus. People really wanted this thing to be one click and you install the thing and it's got all the security and audit logs and things like that. So that was a big focus early on. And then secondly, we did a lot of iterations, like we built features, tried it out with our design partners, tested hypotheses. But one of the things, for example, we did do early on was not signing Fortune 50 companies out of the gate. Because even though there was a lot of inbound from these big companies, because the open source project was doing well, we wanted to wait until we had ironed out all of the stability and the capabilities of the cloud product before we started signing those companies. So that was the early days. And then as we've gotten way more mature, the way we build our roadmap has become a little more structured as well. We use Jyoti Bansal, who happens to be an alumni of IIT Delhi, actually my alma mater back in India. He's got a nice way of thinking about it that he wrote about recently. Inputs into the product planning process is really five lists. The first list is the sales list, which is really tracking what prospective customers are asking for, what the product needs to win deals. The second list is our existing customers and our customer success team essentially is tracking those product requests and understanding what existing customers need to succeed. The third list, and this one is one of my favorites because most teams forget about this, is technical debt. Our engineering management team works with the engineering team. It's a very collaborative bottom-up process to track where our technical debt is, where we need to harden the platform, where we need to build new capabilities. And that's the third list. And the fourth list is really what we call the market leader list. So this is where Swarup and I and some of the folks in the inner think tank, they have a really strong sense of what distinguishes us and what really are the innovative additional product capabilities that are going to expand our total addressable market, build moat, and build differentiation in the right places. And that's where we focus a lot of our attention from that list. And then the final, last but not the least, is our community open source list. And that's basically everything that we need to, one, make sure the community continues to stay engaged and super happy with the project 
And secondly, uh, make sure that the open source project continues to be uh, the best project in the space. Let's switch to team then. So how did you go about building your team? And what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? The short answer to that is mission fit. To understand if someone truly has mission fit, you have to understand what your values are. So we did an early vision to values exercise. We're very lucky that Jeff Wiener is a part of our advisory team and he influences a lot of our leadership thinking. And so we ended up creating a, a values framework that includes what makes an acrylite stand out. And that starts with driving impact, being here because you want to embrace the journey. It's not just about the destination, but you actually want to learn via the startup journey. So every day you're learning something new. The, sec the third value that we have is built together. We're a remote first team. We have flexible pod structures where we often swarm on projects together. So people have to know that it's a team sport and it's not about just isolated engineers just cranking out tons of code, but actually working together. Our fourth value is bringing your best self. And that's obviously a nod to our diversity and culture and inclusiveness. And finally, the fifth characteristic is do your best work. And that is really rooted in our belief that regardless of where you are, whether you're at a big company or a small company, even just hanging out at home, every day you should be figuring out how you can be better at your own craft. Being at Acryl, while we deal with all of the hustle, all of the closing a deal, winning a POC, or building the next feature, are you learning something new every day and are you becoming a better engineer? Are you becoming a better marketer? Are you becoming a better PM every day of your job? That's important. And are you striving to do that? When we interview, apart from all of the coding and this and that and communication skills, we really try to suss out these characteristics. This episode was automatically optimized by Cast. If you run cloud-native software on AWS, Google Cloud, or Azure, you know how out of hand the bill can get. This uncertainty hurts your business, but you can solve it with Cast AI. Cast AI automates cloud costs, performance, and security management for hundreds of companies of all sizes. The platform's customers begin saving immediately and cut an average of over 60%. So before you go and sign a multi-year contract with a cloud provider or lay people off, check out what Cast AI can do for you. To get you saving even faster, Cast AI is offering a free cloud cost audit with a personal consultation. Visit cast.ai slash codestory to get started. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open source edge database from the creators of LibSQL, the popular fork of SQLite. If you put your edge computing close to your users, like with Netlify or Vassell edge functions or Cloudflare workers, you should put your data there too in order to maximize performance gains at the edge. Terso makes it easy. With a developer experience of SQLite and a distributed database, you can replicate much closer to your users than traditional database offerings in the cloud. Terso's lightweight, easy to use, and free to get started. The team at Terso is offering a generous starter plan specifically for Code Story listeners. Head over to terso.tech/slash code story and get started today. That's T-U-R-S-O.tech 
slash code story. Terso, welcome to the Data Edge. Okay, let's flip to scalability then. And given, you know, you're building this originally kind of at LinkedIn, I imagine that you had to build this scalable from day one. But I'm curious if there, you know, were any areas that weren't built to scale or that you had to fight as you grew. Tell me about that. Because a lot of the scalability kinks were worked out at LinkedIn, we did have a lot of advantages starting out on top of that base. Now, there were some interesting learnings, though. At LinkedIn, everything was free. We were a big data team. And when we wanted a new Kafka cluster, we asked our Kafka team to provision a new cluster and we would just get it. LinkedIn was a phenomenal and continues to be, I think, a phenomenal on-prem data infrastructure team. There was attention to cost, but it wasn't exposed in a way that you're getting billed a certain amount and you have to really think very carefully. Only the egregious stuff would get noticed. So it was very easy to build scalably, but not as easy to build efficiently, or it was not as much a concern. But now when we were spinning up the cloud product, we definitely started looking at those numbers and we definitely did quite a bit of work to put those efficiency measures back into the platform. So that was one thing that was new, interesting, additional complexity. The other thing that was interesting was actually new use cases came up that we hadn't anticipated at LinkedIn. So one of the things that happened was, you know, event data. There's a lot of time series uh, metadata that comes in, like every single Spark job that runs, every single Airflow task that runs, all of that produces metadata. And if you look at the scale of that metadata, it's actually a lot. And at LinkedIn, we had not really solved for that high-scale, time-oriented metadata before Acryl started. So we had to go back, do a little bit of design and kind of build that back into the platform. And when I move up into the product, we were very conscious to build around the edges. One of the things I like to talk about in kind of the design reviews is think of every architectural decision or every design decision technically as either a one-way or a two-way door. Can you take a shortcut and is this a two-way door? Are you able to solve this in a week and do it in a way where it perhaps will scale to 10,000 things or 1 million things, but not scale to 1 billion thing? But you can back out of this decision and put in the harder, more complex thing later on and you're not backing yourself into a corner. So anytime we can make trade-offs like that, we definitely do. But typically, we tend to do those higher up in the stack and not lower down in the platform. The lower you go into the platform, the longer your decisions tend to stay. So we try to make sure that those decisions are made with as much scalability in mind as we can put in. So as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I would say number one is the community. We have a Slack-based community. Of course, we have a GitHub project, which means we have a GitHub-based community as well of code contributors, but pretty much all of them are also in the Slack community. So really, when we think about our community, it is really all the data practitioners that are either evaluating the product or evangelizing the product or actually in production with the product and they are giving us feedback asking us questions moving on to the next release and things like that and that includes not only the data engineer on the ground but it also includes in many cases their team members their tech lead their manager in some cases even higher level decision makers so our community is really very diverse but very focused around data and the problem around metadata management And to go from about 200 people, and now we have 9,000 
data practitioners in there. It's not just about, hey, here's a stack trace, please help me with this. But it's also about, hey, this data governance thing is hard. How have you guys done it? I have this idea for what a data product should look like. Who else is struggling with this? And so there's also a community of ideation that has grown. And I love that about what has happened to the community from just a project-based community to moving more towards a data or a metadata-oriented community. The community, of course, is built around the product. So I'm, of course, very proud of the product. Stepping out of the Silicon Valley bubble, being able to reach into data teams everywhere and adapting to how data gets done in other companies, but also being able to influence through the product how data gets done. And we started talking about shift left, moving metadata collection where data is getting created in the first place, right? So even you're creating a DBT model or writing a new DAG or checking in a new schema, why don't you just put the metadata right there along with it? And here are some tools that help you do that. And that kind of movement right now is not something we even discuss because everyone assumes that's how it should be done. So going from a point where this was just an idea and we were talking about it to actually practically implementing it in the product and then seeing that companies like Zendesk and Pinterest and Etsy and Stripe and all these companies that are using Data Hub are actually adopting these practices and then influencing other companies to also adopt them. That's a huge moment of pride, honestly. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. There are quite a few mistakes that I've made throughout my career, as well as in the time at Acro. Instead of picking a specific one, it's probably easier to talk about a category of mistakes because I think if there are any technical founders listening to this podcast, you probably resonate with it. As technical founders, we tend to, when we're in a customer call or we're, when maybe we're in a discovery session as with a sales prospect, we often are very quickly able to draw the line between a stated problem or a stated pain point and a potential solution that could solve that problem. It's very easy for us to figure out, oh, I would just tweak this one thing over here and make this one addition over here, and then I could solve this problem for this customer, this prospect. And in that conversation, oftentimes, you end up overcommitting. You end up saying, and it's probably not going to take us more than a week or two weeks or a month to do it. In that moment, you often end up underestimating how complex the problem is, you overestimate how much context the rest of your team has about the product, right? When when you're a founder and you've built the product from the inside out, you have every little detail, every little a wrinkle, and you know exactly how to make those changes. But when you scale out to a company that has 30 uh, employees, for every employee, they don't have that same level of expertise, that same level of context. So one of the mistakes that we as technical founders definitely do, and I've made my fair share of that, is overcommitting on how long a certain solution will take. And of course, what that leads to is realizing later on that, whoops, this is actually going to take a little bit longer than we thought. And so thankfully, the team is up for the challenge usually, and we've, we've made a few of these mistakes as you know, on the front lines and then later on had to have the team. And the way I like to react to it is I'll get down with the team and be in the trenches with them working, designing, and making sure I'm removing all of the roadblocks so that some of the estimates or some of the thoughts I had when making a certain judgment call, I'm able to at least translate them to the extent possible. Okay, this will be fun. 
What does the future look like for Acral Data, the product, and for your team? What did they say? Cloudy with a chance of meatballs or something? <laughs> the cloud is here, so definitely cloudy with a chance of Gen AI, right? So we are clearly poised at a very interesting time in the history of data. Data kind of reinvents itself every few years. It's been fascinating to actually watch that. SQL was not a thing for a bit, right? No SQL was the rallying cry, and now it's back. <laughs> uh, and I think what has been interesting about the last year, especially, is just the realization that the large language models and the innovation in that space has really caused an inflection point in how data is being done and how data will be done. And what is interesting for us as a product and as a team, the more businesses are racing to figure out how they can monetize data and do interesting things with it, the more important it becomes that the foundations and the trust in the data that they're using to drive these amazing AI models is actually great. And so foundations and trust in data is taking center stage. And we're seeing this in all of the discussion that we're having on the field. And meanwhile, while this generative AI boom is happening, the fragmentation of tools continues to exist. Every few weeks, even now, I come across a new orchestration tool. And that means there'll continue to be more and more systems that people are going to be adopting and using. They will all need this control plane that can connect all of these tools together and make them all cohere. And so that means that our product and our team continues to stay extremely valuable and extremely useful because without this product, you are unable to really kickstart your AI initiatives. And without this product, you're unable to understand that all your data is actually being used and managed responsibly. And both of these are extremely top of mind for uh, companies in the coming days. Let's switch to you, Shashanka. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person or many persons or something you look up to and why. This might be a little bit of a contrarian take, but I try not to be influenced by people, not because I think of myself as amazing. I just want to learn via making my own mistakes. And I think that leads to habits that are longer term, that are not mimicked, but are rooted in a sense of personal experience. So yeah, that means I make a lot more mistakes than someone who can read a leadership book and learn a few things quickly. But it does mean that the habits I build are going to stay longer. So that's been who I am. That doesn't mean I don't look at other leaders or get inspired or admire certain attributes that they have. There's probably two people that come to mind of that nature. One is Steve Jobs, mainly because of I really admired the way he was able to harness simplicity in every single product that he uh, was responsible for. Being a builder myself and building in a very complex and nuanced space, it's a huge challenge to, to harness that simplicity in this complex space. So I really admire what Steve Jobs did. And then the second person I would call out is Jeff Bezos for his customer obsession. That's something that I understood when I was at LinkedIn as team leader with a lot of internal stakeholders. When you're running a business and you have real customers, that's when you really understand what, how important customer obsession is and what kind of amazing outcomes it can drive if your company culture is oriented around that. 
Okay, if you could go back to the beginning, what would you do different? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? Doesn't have to be a mistake. Could have been something that worked and maybe even worked well, but maybe you tweak it a little bit. That's easy. Say no more often. It's again, along with that same theme of being, if you know too much, then you know exactly how to tweak something to make it do something slightly differently. It's very easy to get into the trap of saying, yep, we can do that too, or we can do that too. And so I would say being able to say no more often, being able to say, we'll do that later, not right now. I would definitely encourage my old self to say no more often and other entrepreneurs to to practice that discipline as much as they can. It's an advice that's easy to give, but hard to practice. Well, last question, Shashanka. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world and can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? Don't get too attached to the fact that it's a shiny product or you're in love with it. It's important, but you have to take off those rose-tinted goggles for a bit and say, does it actually solve a problem and does it actually solve a business problem? So until you've gotten that conviction, despite how attached you are to the solution or how shiny the product is, are you able to answer the simple question, what business problem does it solve? That's kind of table stakes before you get started on this road of building a startup. I think getting started on building a project or building something interesting is fine. But getting started on being an entrepreneur and starting a business, you absolutely need to nail down kind of the business value and the the why someone will buy this. The second thing I would say is just the journey itself. It looks very nice and shiny from the outside. But obviously, it's a lot of struggle. It's a lot of uh, moments where you're going to question yourself or you're, you're going to wonder about whether it was worth it at all. And so before you get started on the journey, write down why you're doing it. Uh, what are your reasons? Right? Some people do it for reasons related to financial gain. Some people do it for reasons related to just personal legacy. Some people do it just because they've always had an itch to be a Silicon Valley entrepreneur and they don't even know why. Whatever it is, it's all valid. Just write it down and make sure you know why you're doing it. And then as you go along the journey, look at it every day, every week and make sure those are still the right reasons and you're still staying true to those reasons for why you started on this journey in the first place. And sometimes you'll realize that in the dust of it all, in the heat of it all, those reasons will probably still be constant And so that can help you get through a lot of turbulent times that will be ahead of you. I love that. That's fantastic advice. Well, Shashanka, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Acral Data. Thanks a lot, Noah. This was fun. And thanks for taking me uh, back down memory lane. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.
Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big. 